East FM 88.1, 107.1. Very special edition of Occam's Razor, episode 33, the podcast about the paranormal. Uh, my name is Jim Birchall. If you haven't uh, listened to the show before, we, as I said, we touch on the paranormal, um, things surrounding the paranormal, and also unexplained mysteries and that sort of thing as well. Um, very special guest star on the show today, New Zealand author Scott Bainbridge has made the long trek up from Hamilton, a.k.a. Hamiltron, the city of the future, to come and see us here at East FM. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Good, mate. The weather's a little bit unpleasant, isn't it? Oh, it's, yeah, it's like that. It's probably worse than Hamilton at the moment. Probably worse than there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that biting cold, isn't it? Just yeah. the wind ripping through us. Now, um, Scott, you're the author of a few books, actually. Your most recent one, uh, which we're going to focus on more uh, today, is about New Zealand mysteries. So that's what basically got me interested in getting you on the show, um, given the nature of this show. But you are also uh, written quite a few books on crime and unsolved crime and, and missing persons and things like that. Yeah, um, this was a, uh, this book was a deviation away from crime. Um, I, I sort of became interested in, in some of the mysteries when I worked up at Screen Time in Auckland and, and found this um, or heard these people talking about this house sort of in Parnell where nobody really knew the identity of who lived there. Um, there were all sorts of rumours at the time that it was like a, a you know a, a 1930s B-grade actress who had been involved in some sort of scandal or um, an ostracised member of the royal family. Um, no one actually ever determined who it was, but from then I sort of got, uh, yeah, got interested in, in mysteries, hence this book. Absolutely, and you've got an investigative background as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I've been doing um, investigation work, for, you know, for the last twenty-five years. But this, um, the the writing really combines my interest of investigation and and writing. And and you know, I grew up as a kid in the nineteen seventies, and you know, my job was on Sunday mornings was to bike down to the you know the IGA and get the old man you know the Sunday news, and you know, I'd come back and it was all full of articles about like the crew murders and Mister Asia. So that sort of piqued my interest really. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. I was much. So my uh, dad was in the police and he used to bring home um, newspaper articles because obviously there was no internet then, but um, newspaper articles about Bigfoots and UFOs and yeah. stuff like that. He knew I was into it from an early age because like, those those were the kind of books I picked up. And, yeah. and like at school, my teachers always thought I was a bit out there because I was uh, into things that were, were perceived as out there. Obviously, the, the, the game's changed a little bit now and people are a little bit more open-minded. Yeah. What what inspired you to do the book uh, involving cryptids and paranormal uh, in New Zealand? Well, it was um, a suggestion of my publisher that that there had been um, the, a book or a number of books about New Zealand mysteries written over the years, and um, the bookshops were um, seemed to be you know uh, had, had an interest that uh, to resurrect or maybe get a new you know new modern book out, and so I had a look at um, Robin Gossett's book, which was a bestseller in the nineteen seventies, and she focused um, on a lot of the you know the old you know. Uh, pre-European time mysteries that, that were around. I wanted to do a book with on mysteries that, that people, that the public would know, you know, so more focusing on on 20th century mysteries like the Kaikoura Lights, for instance, you know, I remember that as a kid. Um, you know, most people will know the, the cases that are in this book. However, there weren't that, there weren't a great deal of mysteries, so I ended up having to, you know, delve back a little bit further, but I also kind of cleverly, Brought in a couple of unsolved murder cases that I was, you know, that I wasn't able to include in any of my previous books. So, oh, you know, sort of put those in as well. Yeah, um, New Zealand is limited in its uh, history, isn't it? I mean, yeah. com and compared with you know Europe and so forth, um, we're only a couple of hundred years old in terms of 
um, well, in terms of settlement, um, migrant settlement from Europe and stuff like that, aren't we? So there's we're always going to be a little bit, you know, get a bit stuck when you when you start looking around for answers, aren't you? Yeah, I think with the also with the you know the advent of of um, of carbon dating and, and forensic testing and that that's just um, being improved and the advancements there, um, you know, uh, are, are revealing quite a few. You know, new information about our histories. You yeah. know, um, you know, even I think most recently, you know, they scientists sort of found the the skeleton of a of a rat that had that they believed was dated way back, sort of around about the time of the, you know, the Taupo eruption. You know, which yeah. was way way back in the early AD. So, you know, that indicates that somebody, um, you know. Some person was was around New Zealand, you know, in those early times before, say, the Maori discovered. New well, and someone had to document it, obviously. And you, you know, it's um, we're finding, as you say, we're finding new things all the time. You know, um, when it gets a bit obviously touchy when you test the established narrative, doesn't it? Have you ever, um, you know, come to loggerheads with anyone over your theories, or you know, in terms of early New Zealanders? Oh look, yeah, you know, there's everybody's got a theory, and you know, I have talked to a few people that you know that are of the belief that you know New Zealand was discovered by uh, people other than um, you know what we know in our history books. Yep. I've certainly focused on, with with this book focused on the possibility that New Zealand may have been you know discovered by the Chinese, and yep. um, that's sort of more down to uh, focused that on on a on a ship that um, that. There's evidence there that it that it actually sunk um, in Ruapuki, which is just slightly south of Raglan. It's a pretty treacherous harbour. Yeah. But um, in the late 19th century, there were um, there was like a um, a stone carved bird that was found um, underneath a tree in Ruapuki, and there was also a, a brass bell with Tamil inscriptions on it. Now, both these things could have only have come from, um, you know, a Javanese or a Chinese ship. So we're thinking, so yeah. Indonesian, hence with the yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like um, thinking, you know, focusing on the Chinese. That what so sorry, what era were you dating this from? Like in, in theory, anyway. Oh, look, um, the early years of um, AD. Okay, you know, four ninety nine, five hundred AD, um, as far back as that, and and yeah. the Chinese were um, very well advanced in everything. You know, they had um, huge shipbuilding. Um, uh, facilities and they were able to sort of churn out boats that could travel, um, you know, over many seas and and um, and there was even evidence there uh, that even way back in those times that, that you know Chinese vessels uh, may have actually come, you know, ventured as south as sort of the tip of the Antarctic. So they mm-hmm. had the capability of travelling, you know, yep. over over a great deal. And I think there's a lot of that. Um, is, is sort of being discovered now, you know, with um, things like, um, chi- you know, Chinese uh, or Asian um, chickens that that are prevalent in South America that that have been around for years and years, but have, could have only have come across from China. Okay. Mm. Strange. Unless yeah. someone's just going to China and collecting chickens and bringing them back to South America. Yeah, yeah. Just for fun. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're saying the genetic pool that these the the chickens uh, come from is. Has an Asian origin, yeah, and also yeah. things like rice and that. There were there were some of the early Chinese voyages. I've learnt, um, you know, they would when they would go to try and discover new lands, they would take samples of, you know, trees or or, or plants um, and animals um, to wherever they went, and then they would return, 
with um, with the same from the from the lands they they uh, they travel to. So I'm not I'm not saying that New, um, China you know discovered New Zealand, but I certainly think that they had the capability of of um, travelling as far south as New Zealand and um, may have used New Zealand as a like a uh, like a supply point. You know mm. when they they stopped off and um, yeah, but on um, the way to where. Um, well, um, under the Ming dynasty, there was a, 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 an explorer called Zheng He who yeah. um, had a, a, a great number of vessels and um, they had a huge fleet and he sent parts of his fleet around different parts of the of um, – they, they set sail in different directions. So. Sort of like sentry ships or yeah. – sort of, Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. All right, and so your, your your contention anyway is they may have set foot in New Zealand at some point. Was there any cartography done, and you know, albeit ancient sort of stuff? Any evidence of that? Uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of the early maps yep. that are, that have been that have been made. Certainly, the earliest map um, showing New Zealand was a was a um, made in in Greece um, in the early. Um, 80s, but some, certainly some of the very, very early Chinese maps show do show New Zealand on it. Yeah, on them. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. Did you get a chance to read the article about the uh, giants in the Waikato Valley? Um, we're sorry in the, the Waikato Valley. So you know where Glen Murray is? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You heard about that? The recent excavations and yep. Some people ran into trouble with the with the iwi or, or the oh, landowner or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you know, like I think mm. with um, I mean, I work at New Zealand Transport Agency, and and although I'm not involved with um, the, you know, the the construction of the roading, but I do know that every so often they'll come across, you know, some urupa where um, and, and some you know mass graves of of, yeah. of pre um pre European Murray, and and certainly there has been. Discovery of, of skeletons and some of them are quite uh, are intact and they're you know about eight to nine meters high. Um, the interesting thing about it is that not many people know what actually happens to them. So yes, they are reported about the discoveries are reported about, but um, whenever anybody delves into any detail there, um, nobody finds out where they go. And I know that there's um, there were uh, there are a lot of um, giant skeletons found on Great Barrier Island over the over the years. Um, and, and it seems like I'm, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, but whenever they are discovered, um, you know, the authorities do come and remove them, um, but mm. nobody really knows what happens to them. So, you know, who they are, what they what they were. Do they, do they sort of get removed under the cloak of culturalism so, so no one asks any questions? I understand that it's the, you know, it's the authorities like Doc or... Um, no, really? Yeah, rather than the Māori themselves. I mean, I think they would probably... Um, be equally interested to find out what their origins are. Yeah, well, that's right. The group that was involved was very cloak and dagger, wasn't it? And yeah. the n- names never came to the surface. I'm, I'm sure if you dug hard enough, you could probably find them. Yeah. Um, they were ultimately unsuccessful because they couldn't access the the area. Does that? Yeah. Do you think they were stymied along the way? They they may have been stymied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they, okay. yeah, yeah. I had an interesting um, message sent in just I think maybe through the YouTube channel. Um, a guy telling me that he knew of a giant skeleton in Mungary Bridge. Um, there's a cemetery in Mungary Bridge, um, pretty much adjacent to the mountain there. And um, have you heard of this as well? Um, I'm not sure. Do we have a name for that that person? Uh, not off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's yeah. There's I. 
uh, it may not be the one that I'm thinking of, but I oh. know that certainly in the um, up until the 1820s, there were giant Maori warriors. You know, they, yeah. these are people that are that are eight to you know nine feet tall. Um, that they're descended. No one really knows where they're descended from because there's there's been talk about um, giant Maori warriors way back as far as Abel Tasman's you know time um, in New do, Zealand. Do you think any of that is sort of the little John syndrome and to the extent that they were big as is when compared with the sailors because they were sort of brawny and and you know rugged and and lived off the land? Yeah, it could have been the uh, the one that I do cover in my book New Zealand Mysteries um is a guy called Kiwara who was a um a warrior who lived um south of Te Aumutu, which is where I'm from. Yeah. And there's a um, just out past um, or on the way to Otrahonga, there's a um, there's uh, behind McFall's Quarry, there are three hills and one of them is even today is called Giant's Grave. Um, and the, the story there is is that Kiwara was was um, a, a, a massive warrior and um, and he was killed in, killed in battle. Um, they um, There's a couple of stories about how he died. One of them was that um, uh, he was challenged to a to a battle by with by a, a smaller warrior, and they agreed that they would dig a hole in the ground so that Kiwara was was at the same height as this little guy. <laughs> and but what the little guy was doing was instead of sort of fighting him fairly, what he was doing was running round and round round the the you know the uh, perimeter of the hole. And, and so Kiwara was getting quite dizzy, and, um, and then he was able to sort of you know. Um, stick him, stick him, yeah, yep. yeah. So, <laughs> well, and, and they, yeah, yeah, and they they ate him. You know, they ate him, um, yeah. and there would have been a lot of them to eat. And then um, they buried his bones where they found, which is you know why it's called that today. And um, and and at the time um, there was you know there was some media around, and so they did do studies on on. Um, you know, there there was about maybe about half a dozen known, you know, very very tall warriors that, um, you know, that that are that have been around. So, could it have been some sort of genetic abnormality? Yeah, possibly, possibly, yeah. yeah. Okay, because I mean, if you know, if they're descended from uh, Polynesia originally, mm. um, you know, there could be some sort of bloodline where they were sort of these huge. Mm. Maasai like warriors sort of sort of people. Uh, yeah, there, there's a theory that, there, or there's a story that um, there's an area um, in, in Canterbury um, that that it was well known because a lot of the Maori were big and tall and yeah. a lot bigger than than any other person. Sure, yeah, sure. And if you're a scrawny, uh, scurvy ridden sailor coming off yeah. a boat, you'd probably go, "Geez, who are these fellas?" Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, We've had Mark Capel on the show a few times um, talking about the Moyhale Man. Yep. Um, he currently goes to a research area in the Coromandel, um, which is kind of a secret. I'm sure people probably know about it, but he, he goes into an area and um, tries to capture evidence of the Moyhale Man. So did you do such a thing or were you kind of retelling of the legend? Or It's mainly a retelling yeah. of the legend, but um, I, I do know a few people that live up there uh, or live in that area or, or certainly go hunting in the Coromandel area, and I did talk to them and, you know, they sort of regaled me with stories about um, not not actually seeing the Moyhale Man, but, um, you know, being in the bush late at night and hearing these sort of these strange howls that they couldn't attribute to any particular 
particular animal. You know, it's so, like it's a uh, and these were experienced hunters, yeah. so, so it was distinguished from from a boar or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. these are guys that 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 sort of hunting all around, you know, the North Island. But you know, the, these noises are very distinctive to this to the Coromandel area, and um, yeah, it, and you know, they all reasonably sort of tough, regular old Kiwi blokes, and they you know it does freak them out. You know that there yeah. is that there that there could be something up there. Although I think the last sighting of of something ape like wasn't was back in the 1970s. Was it supposed to be a bit smaller than your traditional Bigfoot stories, from what I understand? Yeah, the sightings of of a um, a wild man. Yeah, it's certainly not not the, sort of the giant Bigfoot that we know that yeah. we know of. Yeah. So closer to sort of the one of the Sumatran apes or those yeah. sort of Hobbit. Sort of apes. The, we had Richard Freeman, who's a researcher of the Ring Pendek, on the show, and he uh, taught us quite a lot about sort of five foot tall hairy men. So. Yeah, well, I know that when they um, did seriously do some research into whether or not it could have been a, um, because there was rumours that it was an escaped circus gorilla mm. um, when the boat came in in the nineteen, I think nineteen twenty four, but um, when they decided to do some research about it, they they did say that, or the scientists said that um, it wouldn't have been a gorilla. Um, it would have been um, well, a gorilla may have escaped, but they don't believe that the Moiho man is relative to the gorilla um it's more of an orangutan just the uh, where where an orangutan sort of um has its nest sort of it's more on the ground as opposed to in the trees 1924 uh now it was, it was a point in history in new zealand where exotic animals could be pretty you know could be introduced they'd brought in like moose and stuff down in uh fjordland and that sort of stuff um would it have just been kind of a circus act, or would it be kind of to start a breeding population in New Zealand, or um, with the Moiho man? It's uh, working off the premise that that it was a escape gorilla or chimpanzee. Look, I think if there was if there's anything like that, it would have been yeah, it would have been a, a, an escape gorilla en route. And I know that in, certainly in Australia they did um, that. The American Army um, during the Second World War did have um, you know pet. Pumas and and, mm. and monkeys, you know, to buoy the spirits of, of the soldiers. I don't mm. know that. Certainly, in the research I've done, there's been nothing. I've read nothing official um, that there have been, and, yep. and certainly with a lot of the exotic pets. Um, I say with this book that there's been a lot of publicity about the you know the, the elusive black panther of the South Island. Well, um, that's in Canterbury, isn't it? Yeah, Canterbury. Yep. Uh, you know, and a lot of people say, well, you know, could it have been escaped circus animal, but or a zoo pet? But you know, we're a small country, and uh, um, you know what I do know is that a lot of the you know even the private farms are pretty well regulated, mm. and if something you know did escape, then you know they it would be all over the news. Um, it wouldn't be something that they'd hush up. When did those sightings start, approximately? Of the Canterbury Puma? Um, look, they've been going way, way back to um, the, um, well, at least the early 20th century. Um, okay. I know there was, I mean, when when the whole rabbit population exploded, you know, they the, the government of the day introduced, you know, the otters and the stoats to combat the, um, them, but they never did. You know, they mm. sort of set, set upon the um, the birds. So they did talk about, the Seddon government talked about introducing lynxes and, and um, small sort of, predatory um, cats, um, but yeah. n- I don't think they ever actually officially did. No. But, yeah, again, similar to the to the gorilla in Coromandel, there was talk that, that there was a circus um, panther, a pregnant circus panther um, that had, um, was en route to Australia and they were in the port of Littleton and the cage sort of 
blew open in the in the cat <laughs> ran to the hills, and nothing was re- really done about it at the time because it was the middle of winter, and they believed that the cat wouldn't survive a Canterbury winter. Mm. But it was really from that 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 there were then the sightings, you know, became more widely reported. Was yeah. the the fact that the animal was pregnant? Um, obviously, that's you know pertinent to the fact that there could be hundreds of these things running around if you got you know male and female. Mm. Um, uh, a breeding population is always the main issue when when people talk of cryptids or, or unknown yep. beasts or beasts alien to that environment. Anyway, yeah. Well, um, there was a listener article two years ago which talked about the wild feral cats of the South Island, and it's quoted there that there are millions. There are millions of feral mm. cats. Um, you know that that sort of uh, that that breed or, or or exist along the banks of the Ashburton River and the you know in the um in the rural part there. Um, yep. You know, and for me, a millions. You know, if there are millions of wild cats, then you know, surely um, they'd be, it's they'd be obvious. You know, they'd stand out and they'd be caught a lot. But um, you know, there doesn't seem to be that many that are caught. I know that whenever there's a sighting of a of a large cat that is believed to be a puma or a panther, um, you know, doc do, um, you know, lay traps, live traps. But you know, I, I haven't heard that there. Been any cats that have been found? No. Or I once saw, I've told the story on the show before, but I once saw a giant cat in, uh, and when I say giant cat, I mean a domestic feral cat. Yep. Well, not domi- you know what I'm saying? Yep. A feral cat, um, but it was big. Like it was seriously big. And that was in Queenstown. Yep. I saw, or Arrowtown, really. I saw it up in the hill and um, I spoke to my friend who lived there and he said, Oh, yeah, I've seen that cat heaps of times, blah, blah, blah. But this thing was a beast. Mm-hmm. Like I could see how people could mistake. One for the other. Um, there's plenty of food for them, but at the same time, um, a farmer's going to notice if his sheep starts going missing, isn't he? Oh yeah, and yeah. Um, there's there's only been a few reports of of you know livestock or sheep being you know ripped to bits. Yeah, um, and there's one one of the ones that stands out was a was a woman and. Um, in Eiffelton, who, which is in South Canterbury, who looked out the window and did see, um, you know, a large cat drag off a, sh- um, a lamb. Right? And, um, and you know, when she sort of chased it off, she went out and the, the lamb just had horrific injuries that it just didn't survive. So, mm. um, but, yeah, there would be, you know, plenty of of, um, of, of food in the forest. Mm. Yeah. yeah. How much credence do you give to um, sightings of moa? Of moa? Um mm. Probably not a lot, not but because um, every few yeah. years of a, a, a granny photo will show up, won't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah I, uh, I mean, they could be around, but I certainly haven't. Um, and certainly, when I was doing my research for the, this book, you know, I haven't certainly hadn't come across it. There's been a lot of, um, you know, news about the moose. There's supposed yep. to be wild moose. I tried to actually get the guy who saw it on the show, and he was a bit, right. bit reluctant. So nothing, oh, yeah. nothing happened with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean. Uh, Moose would stick out though. Even down in Fiordland, though, oh, it would yeah. still stick out though, wouldn't it? Yeah, although in Fiordland, it's, um, you know, it would be needle in the haystack stuff. Mm. You know, in, the, in this book, I write about the Bermuda Triangle, which is the Fiordland area, the southwestern area where, yep. you know, over, over the space of 50 years, there have been, you know, five planes that have, you know, disappeared. And, um, you know, I, I did an investigation on one, and that was Father Crosby's plane that disappeared down there in 1978. And, you know, it could. The, you know, when the guys were on the on the um, were about to fly back, you know, apparently witnesses said that two of them were you know very reluctant to get back in the plane because the you know the fog was coming down and they had to fly over the Southern Alps, and they could have merely flown you know into a you know landed on a one of the hills, snow clad hills, 
yeah. covered with snow and you'd never be found. Yeah. You know, it was... Um, it is pretty vast down there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I'll give you that. I suppose with the moose uh, theory, it holds more weight because there was moose there at one point. There was, yeah. yeah. Now, they, they introduced them, correct me if I'm wrong, from Canada as just as game for, for some... Sort of high society kind of people, is that right? I think so. Yeah, there or was were, it more to start a breeding population? Didn't um, it? I think it was. It was for game. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I don't. To be honest, I don't know a great deal about it. Um, yeah, but yeah, from what I understand, it was yeah more for hunting purposes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Starting uh, down the bottom of New Zealand, working your way up, we're touching on Fiordland and the Canary Puma. Um, anything from sort of the top of the South Island that makes the book. Kaikoura lights, I suppose we've touched on. Kaikoura lights, yeah. For for those who don't know, um, my limited knowledge was 1978, wasn't it? Something like that. And a a film crew from Australia saw um, some pretty pretty trippy sort of UFO looking lights out the window. Um, And it's it's part of New Zealand kind of paranormal folklore. So. Um, what, what uh, anything new uncovered or no? Not really. In the last couple of years, the the authorities have released a lot of the um, the transcripts of the investigation file for that, but a lot of it's been redacted. So I know that there have been researchers that have gone over, you know, but they've learnt really nothing more. You know, um, the only thing that that has been learnt is that that the American authorities did take this um, the UFO sighting quite seriously enough that they did send over agents to have a you know to 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 investigate but again that that all of that's been totally redacted mm. but um how much is it how much of the documents sort of blacked out is it is it readable still or oh, it's it, readable it is, yeah, yeah. It, it'll give you a i mean there's there's about 300 odd pages um and it will give you you know a fair um background uh, you know, to the story, which is you know yep. what I've conveyed in the book, but um, also I think what why this is so unique is that um, at that time in New Zealand, you know, we were going through a big you know space frenzy because you know Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind had been released that year, you know, yep. so. You know, the, the the thought of of life in outer space was was just that little bit extra um, special to quite a few people that are into that. Um, but for me, um, I mean, people have asked me, you know, what I think was out there that night or the nights that um, the pilots believed that they saw these lights, and and I I can't really sort of say, but. Um, but but there must have been something because what what I understand is that um, that the the air traffic controller in Wellington um, saw the blips on on his radar. So mm. as these pilots are radioing saying, "Hey, look, there's this there these odd lights that are sort of zigzagging all around the plane and are following us." If it was lights, I don't think the lights would appear on a radar, or particularly the old style radar, which you know would have been in existence in the seventies. Doppler sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So um, for, for there there must have been a solid object. Yep. Um, you know, it must have been a solid job, object for it to appear on the radar. Mm. Exactly what it is, I, d- I really don't know. How thorough was the investigation? We, when I say we, I'm, I'm thinking the Air Force was involved. I'm thinking yep. because we're a small country, probably the police were involved because they're a multi-agency uh, situation here. Yeah, it, um, yeah. yeah. It was the uh, yeah, RNZAF had their specialist investigators okay. and they they superseded everybody. So I know yep. that, that there were a couple of authorities that did want to um, look into it, but it was pretty much taken over. Okay. Mm. Waving your conspiracy wand, do you think um, anyone in the U.S. government had something to do with the with the documents? Were well, the transcripts being redacted? Um, p- 
possibly, but um, but I think like anything like this, um, you know, when it's unexplained, I think that um, you know even our our government would have been involved, you know, by covering something up. Mm. I mean, certainly they may have been very much led by um, if there was a, um, American over, Americans overseeing it, you know, that they would have had something to do with it too. Mm. Mm. So I'm thinking, I mean, it could have been experimental aircraft at some point. I mean, would New Zealand in 1978 would have been a pretty um, sparse place if you wanted to test aircraft over mountain ranges and things like that. Oh, yeah. You're in quite a good spot. You know, I'm thinking that model was coming to it. That's why I'm interested in the American involvement in it. In the- well, it was um, a month earlier, a month prior to the uh, the Kaikoura lights, there was a young pilot in Tasmania who disappeared. Um, you know, he was flying over the Bass Strait and um, radioed that he was being chased by these lights and um, and he, you know, and then the lost radio contacted him. He's never been found. So there was some thought over there that, um, you know, there could have been an experimental aircraft or, or whatever. It's it's just, for me, it's quite strange that, that that happened and then a month later it happens over here and some mm. thing happens over here. Because um, the, the, the news crew were Australian, weren't they? That's right. I and mean, the news crew were hot on the story of this guy, this young guy, um, Valentich, his name was, yep. um, because it made news... Uh, but, you know, because it was just so, uh, because there was a voice recording of him, you know, being so anxious that he was panicking, you know, saying there's something following me, something following me. And that was reported all over the news. And But, but when the first sightings of the Kaikoura lights occurred, um, New Zealand, you know, the, the media weren't really that interested. But when they heard about it through... I think just through pilots, you know, talking to other pilots, um, you know, that the, the film crew in Melbourne who had followed the Valentich story, you know, they they came over and, and chartered a plane and were very fortunate that they, on the night that they chartered the plane down to Kaikoura, they got the lights. Very fortunate, mm. you would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> squid boats, I've heard that thrown up before, lights from squid boats. Yeah, and I've heard reflections on um, uh, cauliflower patches in somebody's garden, you know. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know um, That's a new light. one for me. Yeah, um, yeah, there's all sorts of, yeah, all sorts of theories and explanations, but, you know, nothing tangible. And, and you know, I think that's the, the big thing for me is uh, the difference for me or the difficulty for me writing this book is that in all my previous books, if I cover an unsolved murder or a missing person case, I, I do go to, to great lengths to try and narrow down what could have possibly have happened and who could have possibly have killed that person or whatever. With this book, I couldn't really do that because um, then it wouldn't be a mysteries book, you know, trying no. to solve it. You know, it's um, it wouldn't be a mysteries book. So uh, that's what present- I str- Yeah, that's yeah. what I struggle with on this show because Given the name, obviously, I'm applying, you know, the um, most likely scenario to things and and people get a little bit disappointed when I kind of offer up um, the alternative explanation, you know? Yeah, yeah. Does that happen with you? I mean, you're you're obviously pretty thorough in terms of your investigation. Yeah, I try and cover all all angles, but, you know, I I left with with this one or this book, you know, with each chapter, I left it open, you know. Um, and, And, you know, everybody's got a theory. I know that when the book first came out, the um, the Herald did a you know that they, they did a, an abridged piece about the South Canterbury Panther and the and uh, the and the Sunday, Herald on Sunday, yep. and um, and reading the um, you know there was I think there were twelve thousand comments from people that you know on the Facebook page twelve thousand yeah, yeah that's um that's um you know there were half of them were, were like saying well no people in the South Island smoke too much marijuana and they you know. 
believe yeah. believe what they're saying. It's nothing more than a normal, you know, um, oversized, overfed house cat. But there are those that say, well, actually, no, um, I have seen it. And I think a lot of people haven't come forward because of you know, like what you said before with that other guy, mm. um, that no one wants to come on and you know, no one wants to talk about it because of the mm. ridicule they get. You know, that- I think particularly down south, which, you know, that people tend to be, uh, more reserved than than you get in the North Island. Yeah. Um. That you know don't want to cause trouble. They don't really want to talk about it and mm. that sort of thing. Um, yeah. The classic kind of UFO response you get from some people who just. But for instance, we had um, a strange. I'm going to call it a meteor. I don't know for sure. Crash into the uh, Waipuna uh, estuary there not uh, a few weeks back, and there was another reported sighting of something similar. Um. I the person who reported the second incident um, had read about the first incident. Um, basically, as a streaker, like a fireball is the best explanation uh, that crashed over the top of the Waipuna Bridge down the road and landed in the water. A guy from the um, observatory told me that the meteor, if it was one, would be worth uh, a, a princely sum, yeah. given the uh, small one that crashed through a roof in, in Ellerslie was about fifty grand. And this one, he said, for it to be glowing like that. By the time it, when it was in terminal velocity, it'd have to be of a decent size. Um, however, now a person came with a second report of a similar incident in Farm Cove, just down the road there. Um, and this was a couple of weeks. I actually put it in the paper I work for as well as, as a little side story. Um, but she didn't want to be named. Um, and I tried to get her, you know, name the paper. She said, you know, it's relevant. No one's going to make fun of you. It's 2020. You know, it is really a lot more enlightened than they used to be. But there's still... There is still that stigma, isn't there, yeah. of um, people looking at I get looked at like a crank all the time, you know, mm. because if I say I do this sort of job, because people correlate um, someone who examines the paranormal or the possibility of it into, you know, crazy conspiracy theorists, do you know what I mean? And there's no middle ground. You're either one or the other. Mm. Um, and a lot of this is coming from people who who are religious. They believe in God, you know, the possibility of God, but they don't believe in the possibility of, of life on other planets, which yeah. I find quite strange. But that's just, that's yeah, just yeah. how I roll, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's pretty closed-minded, and, you know. Mm. Um, but you can sort of tell when you start a conversation with someone and people, you know, you've probably had that and I'll, I start to roll, maybe figuratively, not necessarily in, in person, but you can see that they're going, who the hell's this guy? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's really, fr- like for me, this book in particular was very frustrating to get any witness testimony mm. at all. Um, you know, where, where people, and I think this is probably the only book that I have where I've had to use pseudonyms for a lot of the witnesses, you know. Yep. Um, one of the young ladies I talked to in quite in depth was Angela Montgomery, who came forward in 2016. Again, she lived in another part of Eiffelton in the South Island, and she saw what she believed was this a panther and she's you know she she was adamant then that you know I've been to the zoo I know what and I know what a feral cat is and this wasn't a feral cat this was a this definitely was a panther and that you know that made the news um, when I got when I tracked her down and was talking to her you know she was very um you know she was very sort of um not really wanting to give too much away you know yeah. and it took me a long time to convince her to open up because you know she said, "Look, I when that made the the TV, you know, I went down to the pub and people just you know gave me gave me shit really, yeah. you know it was um you know and and she was pretty much hounded out of 
you know, out of she wouldn't go out anywhere because really? you know people would would say, hey, look, you know, you're, you're I wouldn't last five minutes down there. Then, yeah, would I? <laughs> but you know, and, and and you know, I I did get a message from another guy who lived, who knew knows Angela uh, through her partner and lives in that same area, and and you know he. He poss- he said like oh look I was one of the ones that gave her a hard time but a couple of weeks later um, you know I was in the bush and I saw I saw it and um, you know and he 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 didn't say anything to anybody because he you know he saw what she went through and he didn't want to go through that himself mm. so you know he he kept that very quiet. One thing I noticed that it doesn't help and it does annoy me a little bit. I saw you were on the uh, Project TV show the other day. Um, when the media have a UFO story slash cryptid slash puma or whatever, they've always got stupid X-Files music in the background. Oh, shit. Do you find – does that annoy you as well or is it just me? Uh, well, look – Because straight away the yeah. viewer is yeah. going, this is a bit of a joke, have a bit of a laugh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, oh, which look, annoys me. It does annoy me. Oh, to be honest, um, I, was, I was pretty nervous going on to that, so oh, yeah. I wasn't really sort of listening. But yeah. I, I do, you know, I, you know, I listened, well, watched it back. You know, it was like, oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's yeah. I know that um, when I did a, I, um, I did another um, appearance on a TV show with regards to one of my other books, and it was um, I can't remember whether it was the Bassett Road book or whether it was the robbery book. You know, set in the 1950s, and you know, and the, the background music was sort of like the. Um, you know, the old, you know, B-grade sort of science, you know, of the course, old, old yeah. you know, um, I'm trying to think of the name of it, the old Dick Tracy type music. You oh, know, okay, that, like, yeah. like detective fiction. Sort yeah. Of noir, yeah. But yeah, noir, yeah. But so, yeah. I, I mean, it is an that. entertainment product, I suppose, yeah. to an extent. And, and so is reading, uh, writing, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. So there's always going to, you know, they've always got to pump it up for the uninitiated a little bit. But it, it's one thing that's always dri- driven me mad with the media, particularly yeah. in New Zealand. And they'll start the story almost with a smirk on their face, like, mm. you know, the you know, guess what this person thinks yeah. or guess what this person saw and it'll go on, you know, they'll put it on stuff or stuff will go on Facebook. Well, they won't anymore, but, <laughs> you know, if you've seen the list. Yeah. Um, they'll go on, as you said, half of people will comment, you know, I've seen this and half will say, you know, you're all smoking pot down there and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing sort of just goes in a big circle and there's never really any resolution, mm. uh, which which frustrates me a bit. That was one of the reasons I kind of created the show so we could actually get some answers to these mm. things. Some some things will always stay in folklore because you, you're not going to be able to prove it just with a passage of time. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's... There's other ways to do it. Is probably you know. Oh yeah. Look, I think like you know, um, if if um, well, with the South Canterbury Panther, for instance, you know, by narrowing down, you know, I, I know it's a vast area. Even by narrowing down a, a specific area of the South Island as to where these these are, and if, as I say, there if there are millions of them, you know, it shouldn't be too much of an effort to put live traps. And you know mm. more than just more than one in, in a in an area and 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 monitor it for a couple of days, and I, I, I'm sure that that um, you know something will be caught or something will be found, and that that may very well answer that question. You know, it ha- it hasn't as yet, and I don't quite know why no one has decided to you know take on having a look at these things a little bit further. Um, I think you know the Kaikoura lights. I think even if if the file was um, was you know was was made readily available and everything was there. I still don't think that there would be the answer there. Yeah. I, you know, I think that um, 
um, my gut feeling tells me that, you know, the American authorities or their investigators, you know, they might, might have had, um, you know, uh, technology and, and to, that far exceeds ours to investigate it, but I don't think they would have come up with answers. No. No, so no. it's yeah, just sort of one of those things. That, and, and perhaps that's the reason why they did it. They did, they redacted it. Perhaps mm. they thought, well, okay, we we couldn't find anything either, but we don't want the people to know, so we'll just keep it as that. Yeah. And obviously, nineteen seventy eight, um, terms of official information act and stuff like that. Is any of that likely to expire recently, or it has expired? Um, uh, yeah, there is a there is a limit. For that one, I think it's still quite a few years away. I know that um, one of the other, well, one of the other chapters I did was about the Kaimanawa Wall, which is a, um, uh, it's right in the middle of the bush and um, just south of Taupo, and it's it's a it's a big megalithic structure that um, some people believe it was from volcano, you know, from a volcanic eruption. Other people believe that it was a man-made structure. Mm. Um, when when that came, sort of the publicity about that. And one, a professor from the South Island was was adamant that it was a man-made structure and that it was made by a tribe here, um, the Waitaha people, who he believed that were here before the Maori. Um, and that probably went down like a cup of cold stick. Yeah, it? yeah. It, it did. And um, the Tuwharutoa, you know, they really sort of clamped down on it, saying that it was, you know, now it was a, it was yeah, it was an urupara as well. It was it was something quite sacred to them. And when Doc did a Doc were forced to do an investigation to work out what it was, but um, you know the findings won't be made available till um, two thousand and seventy five. You know, conveniently. So, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, um, and, and in fact, you know, there's very little of of that file that's um, available now. A lot of that comes um, these things getting opened up comes through public pressure, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Um, you saw that with the the storm area fifty one and all that sort of carry on, which mm. <laughs> obviously didn't eventuate really. It was yeah. quite funny in the index with that yeah. one. But um, you think in 2020, the with increasing glasnost, particularly from, um, you know, countries that weren't always open, um, these things, and with the internet and the, the easy sharing of information, these things are really starting to come to light. You know, you see with the disclosure movement with with UFOs and mm. that sort of stuff. I think people have reached that point where they're like, hurry up and tell us. Mm. We know something's yeah. going on. Well, one of, I think one of the biggest world mysteries ever, and I would have loved to have written about it, was the Dyatlov Pass incident. Yeah. And, um, and, and you know, with, as you say, with um, with Glasnost and, uh, and stuff, um, you, you know, there have been a lot of papers that have been released on that, but I still don't know whether or not, and that, that happened back in the 1950s, but I don't know whether or not it has actually been officially explained as mm. to what happened to those people. Mm. Yeah. It's just one of those, with, with time you can sort of mm. just bury things, can't you? Yeah. Literally and figuratively. Mm. Um, I didn't know that we had a Jack the Ripper style murderer in Auckland. Um, I understand there's a chapter on the Nelson Street Ripper uh, case that dates back to 1914. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, yeah, the, this, uh, the murder occurred um, just um, the night before um, the first lot of troops disembarked Auckland to go to Gallipoli. So it's okay. the very beginning of World War One, And so, um, you know, at that stage, New Zealand, you know, was on high alert and at a frenzy and stuff just because of the war. And this um, prostitute called um, Frances Marshall was found um, stabbed to death um, and 
sort of an outside of factory in, uh, on the corner of Union Street and, and Nelson Street in town. Yep. And um, I think there were 72 um you know, um, stab wounds to her body, and so it was a frenzied attack. It was a frenzy. Someone wanted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and and so the the police, when they carried out the investigation, it was actually led by a guy called Peter McMahon, who was uh, chief. He was chief detective. He was the youngest chief detective ever in New Zealand. He was earmarked to be commissioner, so he was. It was really, really clever and clued up. Um, um, for some reason, and I don't. I haven't worked out why um, Do- Dr. Bull, the police pathologist, believed that the um, the killer was left-handed and just because of the way the, um, he was stabbed down. Uh, for some reason, um, Chief Inspector McMahon um, tried to get the, the evidence changed that it was a right-handed killer. Um, I still haven't sort of worked, figured out, figured out why, but um, while the police were, you know, trying to work out, um, you know, who was the killer of Francis Marshall, there were reports of another prostitute that was found um, just off Freeman's Bay, um, just off the wharfs there. So in a very close proximity to Nelson Street, probably on the same beat. Um, the, you know, the, the, I mean, it's all thick built up now, but back back in 1914, it was, there was a fair bit of the, the wharfs were there and this prostitute was found in the water and, and it was concluded that she that she um, was drunk and she fell off and off a boat and she drowned. But um, I've, I've seen the initial reports, the initial um, pathology reports was that there were quite a few stab wounds to oh, her body. Right? And um, again, Chief Detective McMahon had had um, had an input into that investigation. And um, because in the in the papers and 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 an amended um, pathology report, there's no mention. When it went to the inquest, there was no mention of the stab wounds or the bruises and the cuts to her body. It was more that she she drowned. So I've um, introduced the fact that you know there could have been a, a, a ripper that was that you know that had killed two women, um, and the reason why the police. Um, you know, uh, silence the the fact that you know there could have been a, a two victims was because they didn't want you know people worried because uh, with all the soldiers going off to war the sure. Auckland there was so many you know you know women and and you know their boyfriends and their and their husbands had gone off to war so there are all these sort of women around they the police sort of figured they didn't want. Um, you know, Auckland women to be worried about having to, you know, venture out of their houses, so they hushed and up. And they probably would have read all the penny dreadfuls from yep. from Victorian England and stuff like that. And yeah, well, the, the, so they knew about the yep. Ripper. And, and the Ripper yep. back, back then was probably, you know, the Ripper murder then happened sort of just under thirty years ago. You yep. know, before that. So yeah, yeah. I'm actually going to ask your opinion on the Ripper because anyone who's who's learned that I speak with, I ask them who they think did it. The, Jack the Ripper. Yeah, or, Jack or, the Ripper. Look, um, I've always favoured Kaminsky, the uh, the Polish oh, Jewish fellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I certainly don't think it was Druid. No, um, you know, I know that you know, growing up and reading about it in the book, you know, I mean, there's so many books available, but I know that when I had a and they're all interest, called they're all called case closed. Yeah, yeah. Except it, was, it isn't. Yeah, yeah, and I certainly don't believe Patricia Cornell's theory that it was that the artist. Circuit? Yeah, yeah, definitely not. What so. what, what holes did you find in her story? Um, I, I I thought that um, I think his it was his personality. I mean, I've I, you know I haven't read her book. He was a nasty piece of work. He was anyway. a nasty piece of work. Yeah, yeah. but I yeah then you, know, you you read other accounts about him and and that um, you know yeah he was a mean sort of ornery sort of guy. But um, you know could he have 
was he around? You know, he was definitely around then. But yeah, I just yeah. She speculated he had some sort of um, sexual dysfunction, mm. um, which which enraged him, and then he ended up stabbing prostitutes. You know, as yeah. a thing. Um, and his painting, one of his paintings, basically is called Jack the Ripper in the yeah. corner or something like that. And everyone she put mm. two and two together. For me, he could have known this guy, but I think it's more likely he was just fascinated with the case. Yeah. And being a bit of a bit of a um, narcissistic sort of guy, probably placed himself into two situations where he might have even been responsible for writing some of the notes to mm. the Met Police. You know, a lot of them would prove hoaxes. She she bases a lot of it on some entries he made in a guest book in a hotel. Uh, he stayed in something like Wales. It wasn't in London anyway. Mm. And basically the handwriting, there's a bit of a match between that and some of these letters that came in. Right. And that's sort of where she gets it from. And she bought all his paintings and then burned them, mm-hmm. uh, which didn't go down too well right. with Walter Sickert's family because right. she was convinced he was, a, mm. you know, uh, the guy in charge. I don't know. Did they ever come up with suspects for the Nelson Ripper? Nelson yeah, they did. They, they initially thought it was her uh, Francis Marshall's husband. Um uh, and he was left-handed, so yep. um, so they were both prostitutes. Is that right? Um, the the um, the other woman, you mean? Or, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, um, okay. there were two different scenarios. Um, Fr- Francis was sort of, um, you know, they they came from Freeman's Bay. I mean, when you say you come from Freeman's Bay today, people assume that you know, you must be a multimillionaire. But back <laughs> yeah. back then, it was the Freeman Bay slums. So yeah. you know, because um, the land wasn't reclaimed. Yeah, either, so, yeah, and yeah. it was you know um, a high mortality rate as well and Francis's husband was called a fish curer and he was regularly out of work and um and, and he was always drunk, so you know she had to t- you know turn tricks to to bring in the money. Mm. Um, but I mean, I don't think that he did that because if if he did kill her, you know, I mean, by allowing her to go out and and you know earn, earn the money, um, it, it saved him from having to do it. Um, so I mean, why cut off your cash supply? That's what I what I think. So there was he wasn't. And to be past the point of being enraged with jealousy or anything, yeah. because he's he's pimping her out, really, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and the, with the other woman, she's entirely different. She was what you call a, a, a ship wife, so she was a prostitute that would, um, like like a lot of prostitutes back then, they earned a lot of money by um, befriending a lot of the sailors that would come in. So sailors would come in, um, and they'd get paid paid off from their, you know, on shore, on their shore leave, and they'd be flush with money, and so they would hire themselves a, a woman for a, for the, for, you know, and, and so she was, uh, Alice Ward was her name, she was a, um, a ship wife, and so she... So they went all around town with them and stuff? Yeah, and, like, she, yeah. you know, um, she stayed on board the boat with them. Oh, okay. Um, he, paid, like he paid her rent whenever they went out for dinner, you know, he paid for dinner. He paid for basically everything, and then, of course, there's no money, um, and he, you know, signs on to go back to, to sea. So, um, it's it's believed that she Alice was was a was a ship wife, and that she w- worked out that the, the guy that was a Danish sailor that that she was with then. But there was also another guy on board that same boat. His name was Taylor, and um, Taylor um, he had had violent tendencies as well, and he was definitely on shore when Francis Marshall was killed and was in that same area. So, um, I've i kind of, even though I kind of left it open, um, there is a hint there that maybe you know Taylor was responsible for both. Was he a local or did he um, sail in and out? 
Uh, he sailed in and out, but yeah. he was from. Um, there was not a great deal of information about him, but he, 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 he died of um, tuberculosis like about four or five years later, and yeah. one of the ship homes. Um, nineteen, yeah, yeah, of course, no, ship no, homes. No. So, um, you know, but by then, you know, that there were only the two murders. There was another Ripper murder which occurred on Mount. Eden. Um, it was a young man, a gigolo, who was killed on the on the slopes of Mount Eden, nineteen sixteen, and there was a lot of talk there that those cases were linked, but I don't believe they were. No, so it doesn't really fit the MO, does no. it? No. And why? Um, why did this fellow McMahon have the theory about the, the different hand was used in the murders? Um, well, I, I think that. The, well, Doctor Ball certainly. Was of the belief that the killer was left-handed, just because of the the angle of the of the uh, stab wounds from behind or from in front. From from sta- uh, sitting in f- or yeah, positioning himself. So grab grab round the neck, grab yeah. round the neck, and attack. Yeah. Okay. Um, McMahon wanted to just change it around. For some reason, he didn't. You know, he didn't want um, it to be known that there was a left-handed killer. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know. I don't know why, but I mean, for all his brilliance, um, McMahon was a flawed detective, and I, and he he um he ended up having to resign from the police, um, and with a huge scandal. And in my third book, I wrote called "Shot in the Dark," where it was that covers unsolved murders of the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. I wrote of a grocery boy called Fra- uh, Francis Jew, who was found beaten to death up on Arch Hill, and um, the night before. Um, he was actually seen or um, with Tommy McMahon, so and Tommy McMahon was the chief detective's son. Okay. So and Tommy McMahon had you know whenever he got drunk he beat people up and so um, you know the the police even though they respected Chief Detective McMahon they had to keep him away from that investigation but he he couldn't help but get himself involved and I say in that book that he he actually convinced a lot of the people from Grayland to um, you know uh, to not assist with the police inquiry and certainly when Tommy McMahon was interviewed at the inquest um, he gave a lot of um, um, a lot of r- ridiculous answers to questions from the from the you know the the magistrate, which frustrated him, but you could tell he was tutored by by his father. Sure. But um, so that that case is still unsolved. That was back in 1921. But about a month later, Tommy moved down to Tiwamutu, and he um, was he he did get arrested. He he beat up a um, a woman that he was took to the movies in a, a similar fashion, and he actually went to jail for a long time. And Chief Detective McMahon died a year later of a broken heart. Really, mm. he was, would have only been about 43. It's mm. a hell of a story. Mm. Very interesting. I can't let you go without um, talking about the ghosts of the St. James. Yeah. I had uh, Sam Collier in from Haunted Auckland. Um, we were Sam in last week. Uh, I asked him, because I knew you were coming on the show, so I asked him if they'd done one, and they did one uh, before it got all torn down or whatever happened, renovations, um, and they didn't pick up anything significant there, but it was. Um, they they said they found a few secret rooms full of old films and things like that. So that so that is that the one in Auckland? It's St James, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Is that the one you're talking about? No, no, oh, I'm it's a different St yeah, James. Yeah, so there was. Um, well, you could have done both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, look, a reason I did um, Her Majesty it was Her Majesty's Theatre to begin with, but it's it's Saint not. St. James Theatre now. Okay. Um, only because, you know, there, there were, um, there is said to be, you know, a few different ghosts in that, that haunt that theatre. Mm. Um, I, I researched the case of a, a guy called um, 
J.H. McCormick, who was uh, it was probably one of New Zealand's earliest unsolved murders, and he was found garroted to death down an alleyway behind um, St. James Theatre back in 1909. And, um, and, it, and, it's, and down that alleyway now is a, um, a massage parlour. And and some of the or one of the ladies that that works there said you know she'd come out in the evening to have a cigarette. This is only a few years ago, and there'd be a man there with you know she'd she'd often see a man with a with a sort of a handlebar moustache dressed in old clothes. Right. And um and then you know she just thought he was a drunk patron you know and she'd tell him to you know bugger off sort of thing and then she yeah. looked up and he was gone. So she said she saw him twice. Um. And you know, then sort of found out that well, actually there was a murder that happened down exactly in that in that area, which was at that stage the cloakroom for the St James Theatre. So people would go when they say a cloakroom, it was like a toilet, as but you'd you'd also hang your umbrella and your coat sure. to go into the theatre. Um, and I've talked to a couple of the theatre staff there, and they say, hey, actually, well, we haven't heard of that ghost, but there are, you know, there's the ghost of the um, the ballerina, and there's the wailing woman, and there's the boys' choir, and. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, I talked to a few of those people that have worked there over the years that are actually adamant that you know that that is uh, there are ghosts. One guy I talked to said that his job at the at the in the eighties at night was to turn all the lights out in the theatre and then he'd head home. You know, and he said a couple of times he'd drive home and he'd see the lights back on and he'd go, "Well, actually, no, I switched them all off." And it's not just one switch; it's a whole switchboard. Sure. So you know, he'd go back in and you know half the lights were switched back on and there's definitely nobody there. Yeah, but he he said. I don't know how they the, all these lights came back on. Theatres always have a ghost, don't they? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's always a bit of an artistic license with, with theatres, but um, to see a full-bodied apparition from a, obviously a period um, not of our own is, mm. is good, you know lends quite a bit of uh, credibility to the thing. When I was in Melbourne, I went to uh, what the hell's the name of the theatre there? Top of my head is just falling. They have a ghost called Frederici. Oh, okay. Uh, Frederici. Um, he was an actor who died on stage. And there's a restaurant now or bistro there named, named after him and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's um, comes with the territory a little, a little bit, doesn't it? I think so, um, so, yeah. Is a ghost your, a, a main focus of yours? Is that something you just threw in? Or what are you more interested in, cryptids or ghosts? Or Oh, look, um, for, for me, for me, uh, I mean, it's it's crime is, is, is my yep. thing. But um, with doing this mysteries book, I thought what I'd do is choose, you know, one of, of every medium. Like, you know, I, I didn't want to do, sure. um, I didn't, I mean, I live sort of, you know, quite close to the White Homo Hotel, which is supposed to be haunted as well down yep. by the, the caves. But I thought I'd just focus on one haunt, one ghost, um, one, you know, cryptid, you know, the Moy how, Man. And- how does your rational investigative mind um, cope with doing stories on ghosts and things like that? Um, well, I've I've, um, I've worked on a I worked on a TV program called Ghost Hunters International, which was um, uh, a show, uh, an American show that that you know the, the crew go around the world to film haunted houses. And I through that I got to know Anton Herrick, um, who's president of the Christchurch Paranormal Society. He's probably that of the ghost hunting organisations in New Zealand. There's quite a few, but he would they would be the upper. They would be the ones that I absolutely totally respect. Yeah. Um, you know, and they have the technology to, you know, and they, they go in and they, they have picked up, you know, they, they've picked up orbs, you say, um, you know, of, of which they believe are ghosts and they've actually heard noises as well, which they think are voices. So for me... Um, so it's balancing the science with the narrative, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, I wouldn't say that I totally believe in ghosts, but um, there's something there. It's sort of like psychics, you know. Yeah. I believe they've got a gift, but I don't 
probably don't probably don't understand it enough, but you know, there's but there's also crackpots as well, you know. So, <laughs> and that's um, where things get sullied. I mean, everyone, everyone's entitled to believe what they want, but yep. um, doing a semi-serious study, study on things sort of get it, it gets clouded, as I said, by mm. because the people you have to seek information for are the you know these people that are have a vested interest and in maybe aren't all there mentally, which which oh, doesn't doesn't help your case. Yeah, it? yeah. Look, yeah. I'm very much of the, you know, because of what I've done in the past, very much finding the evidence. Yeah. So if, if I can find the proof, then there's something there. But then I, 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 I'm still, uh, I guess, um, even if I don't find the evidence, um, you know, there, there's still possibly something there. Yep. And just because I haven't found it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, um, you know, um, absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. So it's... You know, there, there could be something there. Nice, mm. nice way. And thanks for coming in, Scott. Cool. Thank you very much. Uh, for hope you me. enjoyed yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Excellent. It was Occam's Razor episode thirty-three uh, live today on East FM eighty-eight point one, one hundred seven point one. We'll now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Mm-hmm.